This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Penwood's Equine. The folks at Penwood's Equine are excited for you to hear about their new foot quality product, Essential Rescue. When you've exhausted all other biotin or foot quality products, this will be your go-to because it gets results in an incredibly short amount of time. Maybe you have multiple horses and everything you're doing seems to be working for them, except that one horse. No matter what you try, nothing seems to help that horse. We've all been there. Well, Essential Rescue is a product that you can add to whatever you're already feeding to achieve great hoof quality results. Through our own research and reports from our customers with their own horses, Essential Rescue can help deliver significant improvements in just one shoeing cycle. And for a limited time, Penwoods is offering free shipping on Essential Rescue when you buy from Penwoods.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. In this episode, I talked to Kim Lacey about her experience on the American Farriers Association Exchange Program and with British Columbia farrier and educator Jared Laverty about what's going on with the voluntary registration and reformatting of farrier education within that province. But first, an anvil fell silent earlier this week. Douglas Bradbury of England had a tremendous influence on the industry throughout the United Kingdom. A mentor to multiple generations of farriers, he also created and curated the UK Horseshoeing Museum. I talked with Grant Moon, who was friend and student of Bradbury's, about his impact on farriery. I think an interesting thing about Doug's life is he was one of those last connections to a different horse world and uh, how he grew up and uh, the the work with the mines. And uh, can you talk about that a little bit and, you know, his role well, with, yeah. with with horses when they were really essential for, for business? Well, I've known Doug and the family since um, I was an apprentice. I met Doug because of my, my boss, uh, my, uh, Steve Langford, because Doug and Steve were on a course together at, Hereford College to take their AFCL, okay? So they were attending a course, and they got to know each other through the this AFCL course for the Worshipful Company of Farriers that later became the associate of the Worshipful Company of Farriers. And Doug's son was an apprentice, and Doug wanted him to get away, you know, to see something a little bit different, and maybe they weren't getting on so well at the time. He sent Neil down to spend some time with my boss, and Neil and I worked together. So that's how I ended up meeting Doug, because the second tie was my parents had a hotel a short distance from Doug's workshop, and so I needed somewhere to practice. So that's how we met, is through uh, his son Neil and my, my parents having a hotel near Doug's. Um, Doug, he was a yeah, last of that old generation, you know, he came from mining areas and it was probably expected for basically everybody that they went, you know, young lad leaves school, 15 years old, down the pit. So he went to the pit and with, because he had some ill health in the pit, they moved him onto the surface. Still working for the coal mine, but they put him into the blacksmith shop. And so he started off as a striker 
in the blacksmith shop and the blacksmith there would have done everything from making the tools for the engineers, the axles for the trams. He'd have, he'd have repaired anything that came through the door. And Doug went in as a apprentice striker. And at that time, the striker was, was a full apprenticeship. So Doug went in as an apprentice striker and then became an apprentice blacksmith. And they still at that time had pit ponies. So they would go down the shaft each day and they would, like in the lunch break, they would shoe the pit ponies. They'd do whatever was necessary to keep them maintained. It might be one shoe or a pair of shoes on a pit pony, but they were down there every day shoeing pit ponies. And so, um, yeah, that's how Doug grew into horseshoeing. But he spent a lot of years as a blacksmith at the pit, blacksmith farrier at the pit, because he started off in the early, early 50s, and he didn't leave the pit until about 1967. And he set up a farrier business in Clay Cross in Derbyshire, which he remained at for, for the rest of his life. Um, it lived in the same place with a forge behind the house in the little town that they lived. And at that time, there would have been a lot of working horses being shot. And basically, the luxury horses up there would have been uh, the hunters, the wealthy people's hunters and steeplechasers. Um, you know, so he went to the 60s and 70s shooting more working horses. And by the time the 70s and 80s came, it was turning into a leisure industry. And um, he, he started to train apprentices. His first, I knew his first apprentice, Martin Bridge, and there's a bit of a funny story there, because Martin was the apprentice, but he was on a formal course at Hereford College to become a farrier and was going to get qualified as RSS, and Doug wasn't qualified, you know, didn't have a formal qualification, so this kicked Doug in the ass and uh, made Doug decide to get a qualification too, and he went, he went and got his RSS a few months before his apprentice did. And they they shod all types of horses. I shod with them for quite a few years on and off, and I'd go out with them. And they'd have a couple of vans on the road with you know three three or four farriers going out, and it was a time when there was a lot of opportunity for farriers. Um, pleasure horses were really coming on, jumpers, and just general riding horses. And they were mobile farriers at the time, which was a fairly new concept, especially mobile farriers shoeing hot. And he, he worked his way up to a very nice business. Um, over the years, he trained about 15 apprentices. He trained his son, Neil, and he also helped train his grandson, Tom. So, you know, there is three generations of Bradbury's. He was always looking for more, you know, he, he always strove to be better. He was one of the first farriers that did photography, and at that time, he was sending the films off to get developed, but he wasn't satisfied with that, so he, he took up doing photography, and he was developing his own pictures and modifying his own pictures and doing macro photography. I remember him taking, you know, close-ups of the laminar and that, and it was, it, it, he was right at the, the first part of that in the early 80s. Um, I know he uh, um, joined the worship company Farriers in about 88, because, you know, because he wanted to participate in a bigger way in the industry. He passed his AFW in 1995. And in that process, I spent quite a bit of time with him. We'd work in the forge together and we made all the, 
or I structure him to make all his specimens because at that time, tool and fuller was a pretty big thing. And uh, he did his thesis and, uh, you know, because of the photography, it was definitely one of the more advanced theses at the time. And, you know, he, he became a fellow. So um, then shortly after that, he became an examiner. And for over 28 years, he was a senior examiner with a virtual company. So I would have said he probably participated in qualifying a significant number of farriers in Great Britain over those 28 years. You know, I think that's that's the interesting thing, too, is this completeness he had of, uh, you know, advancements in, in trying to document work, uh, photography, etc., uh, uh, always growing. Uh, but a lot of people also know him as really the, the curator of, of British farriery and, and what he was doing with his horseshoeing museum and just the incredible amount of information he's documented over over the decades can you can you talk a little bit about his museum yeah well he retired in uh, to about 2002 when he was 65 and he was looking for something to do and he was down at the uh, farrier school down in hereford and they were throwing out a, um, a bunch of old trophies they were in the bin and Doug uh, pulled these old trophies out that were just black with age and uh, took them home. And he cleaned them up and they, they were significant trophies. They were awards, I think, if I remember correctly, from a farrier called Richardson, who'd been a very prominent farrier, you know, probably in the 30s and 40s, maybe the 50s, I'm not really sure, but they were throwing these trophies out and Doug decided to start a museum and uh, was a pro prolific collector of old horseshoes but always tried to get a little bit of history about them and collected you know medals from other farriers and other farriers shoe collections and curated them and so he put a, a big effort into uh, collecting a lot of farrier related memorabilia that will probably have been lost you know, um, what we found, what he found was a lot of people wanted to donate stuff, you know, the father or the grandfather died who was a farrier and the children had no place for the farriers, you know, the old horseshoes and the old tools. So Doug turned the upstairs of his old forge into the, the start of his museum. Um, so over the years, he, he collected a tremendous amount of stuff, but pictures, shoes, and later on, he started collecting um, artifacts from the mining industry that was really relative to pit ponies and the horse part of the coal mining. And his museum wasn't just open to farriers. It was also open to the local community. He did a lot of talks for the local community for different groups. Well, it took him significant distances, and he would talk about Ferrari, do a PowerPoint presentation, he'd take artifacts, and he'd give PowerPoints to many, many, many groups. And that was part of why Doug earned his MBE, was not just his services to Ferrari, it was also his services to his community. And, it, it, you know, so he, he was a very well-known person in his local community. Um, probably one of the highlights would have been when he did get his MBE, member of the British Empire in 2018, 
it was afforded by Princess Anne, uh, the Princess Royal, and she had been a past master of the Worshipful Company of Farriers, and Doug would have known her in the Worshipful Company of Farriers at that time. So, um, yeah, it, it was his museum that grew and his activities in the community that really um, brought him to the forefront in other areas. Yeah, you know, he he did, he did many things. He was even a judge at Calgary in 84, you know. So, you know, he, he did he judge some competitions. And so he always encouraged his apprentices to compete. And uh, his son, Neil, com- competed at Calgary the very first time I went. So, um, yeah, it, 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 he has a long history in the, in the industry. Yeah, a tremendous impact. And, and it's, uh, uh, I think, what you talked about earlier, the legacies really in the, uh, a lot of this, the people who apprentice under him, all the, the people who, uh, who he judged in competition, all the people that he was an examiner for. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it's just far reaching through, through British Ferriery. He was a mentor to many. I mean, uh, you know, uh, many, many people uh, spent some time with Doug Bradbury. You know, his shop door was always open. I mean, I remember when I was living in the States and I'd go over with the, with the American Farriers team and for many years we went to Doug Bradbury's because he had a number of forges and we'd go there to practice before we went to Stonely and this went on for many years. You know, he hosted um, people from the culture, uh, from the AFA, from the cultural exchange. So, you know, he, he he's had a, his contacts with the United States quite significantly through the cultural exchange and the AFA team. Yeah, I think that's a appropriate uh, thing to talk about because uh, we're doing the uh, part of this podcast was an interview with the exchange person uh, from this past year. And, uh mentioning how she spent time at, at Doug's museum. Yeah, I mean, nearly everybody who came over would have probably, you know, many, many of them have visited his forge and his museum. It was just an open door. Right. You know, his, his wife, uh, Joan, they'd been together since they were 14 years old. And she had, uh, you know, she she was just always at the coffee pot on and always uh, a slice of toast for everybody who ever came to visit and they had many many farriers stay with them from all over the world if you visit american farriers journal website at americanfarriers.com you can see a gallery of the uk horseshoeing museum and some videos we made with douglas bradbury Bradbury was always a gracious host for dozens of farriers who traveled to the UK for the American Farriers Association Exchange Program. So it's fitting that Kim Lacey and I talked about her involvement on the program. She shared some of the highlights of the extended travel she's recently done. So, the cultural exchange. How much time have you spent on the road over the last year? Um, I left in October 2018, so I left. I've been gone from home in uh, Red Deer, Alberta, for a year and a half now. No time at home? No, I've no, not at all. I've been gone, just gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, what what inspired you to to apply and disappear? Um, well, I started my first trip in 2017 with the original Edward Martin 
um, cultural exchange with the American Fairies Association in 2017. I spent almost four months there traveling through just doing the regular exchange. And when I came back to do my presentation in 2018 at the convention, Vern and I sat down and I kind of wanted to continue traveling. I wasn't quite done yet. I thought I wanted to start my business and I thought, well, there's a, there's a lot out here and I kind of wanted to see Australia, you know, a few other places. I wasn't really sure. And then Vern kind of pinned me down and said, well, we want to kind of expand the exchange. And he kind of had this bit of a dream, I guess. And I just turned out to be the guinea pig with the right place at the right time. And um, I'd represented the AFA exchange and I guess an appropriate way that they liked. So um, we were able to work together and so it's been two years since I've seen anybody and everyone, I guess, just trusted me to do my thing. And now I'm back here and was able to present what I've gathered, the information and who I've met and what I've done and just on behalf of the AFA. So it's been a huge privilege. So uh, I know we could talk for hours on this. <laughs> the quick summary, where all did you go? So I started in South Africa. I did three months there and... Vern had already kind of made contact there, so we're pretty solid with um, the potential for the exchange there. And then I went back up to the UK just to show the benefits of post-exchange, that it's not just we're just sending somebody over now, but these relationships last a lifetime. So I was able to organize my own trip, I guess you could say, and went back to visit people and people that I had a chance to see again. Then I went down to Australia and I spent three months there on event exchange, and I based it all around competitions and clinics because that's where the biggest gathering is. So I started at the ECA. I'd already made contact with people in the UK, another post-exchange bonus. And I met everybody there, and everyone kind of got to know me, and I'm kind of Canada Kim, I guess, and um, I'm corny, eh? <laughs> So I met everybody there, and from there I just kept traveling. After three months, I went to New Zealand and basically had a bit of a work opportunity there, stayed with a few farriers, did a competition, kind of reached out there. And then I went back to Australia for another three months and continued my travels. It's such a huge country. So in the last year and a half, I've stayed with over 30 farriers. And I think I've done almost 20 different farrier events, including competitions and clinics. So the network has become very broad and with farriers who are wanting to improve the industry, not only by going themselves, but by putting the time into their associations. So a lot of people are super excited everywhere I've been that, you know, we're kind of getting them out there and people, they want to be involved. So it's a cool thing to be a part of. What are some of the moments that really stick out for you from, from all the journey? Um, I think it's all the families I met. Um, it's that relationship. I still message or try to phone or you know, keep in touch with everybody. So people in Africa, you know, seeing how the farriers adapted there and whatnot, I was able to see different game parks, a different culture. It kind of just slaps you in the face, that culture and the way they've overcome everything and they just, how the industry can really push through. Um, same with Australia. Um, I just, I just had a blast doing everything. It was, you know, kangaroos and, you know, koalas and everything. And, you know, the Seeing, seeing the struggles they went through, um, everything from drought to wildfires out of control, people just trying to run their business and have their families and still protect their homes and shoe horses to make a living. And, you know, and then we went through, there was a cyclone off of Sydney there and, and there was floods. So um, I think what really sticks, sticks out to me is just how the farrier industry is able to just stay strong in such disaster. <laughs> It's been so cool to see. And when I first started my trip, I had no idea kind of where this was going. I thought I did. But after coming back, it's, it's just blown me away. And just how people have 
brought me into their lives. So, what sticks out? Any differences in in their approach to business, or everybody's different everywhere? Mm-hmm. Of of course, um, everywhere is unique. Um, each individual, each farrier, anywhere is unique. But when you're talking about specific countries, there's definitely hurdles that they have to go over for, say, um, South Africa. Their brand is at a poor exchange rate. They have a huge history that's kind of a little bit dark, but um, there's a whole other side to it, their side. And then there's also um, trying to get tools in or products or any type of farrier-related materials is is very difficult, and so they've just had to kind of persevere with it. But um, same with Australia. They've become very resourceful. A lot of guys make their own tools. It's like that in most countries, but I just really noticed it there is it's hard not to go to a shop with all the guys I was with that didn't make one type of tool that they were kind of known for. But the uh, whole side of the business and, and how it's run, it's all very similar. And obviously some guys are stronger in scheduling or whatever. But I just really noticed that it's all been the same. That the good farriers are good and the poor farriers are poor and there's stuff in the, in the middle. And the guys at the top are kind of leading the way and trying to bring everybody else up with them. So. Yeah, it sounds like you've got an education on every aspect. Mm. Business. Yeah, I was able to experience kind of all of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What overall? What do you think the biggest impact on you as a farrier has been? From like just how it's affected mm-hmm. me. Um, I think what it's taught me is that everyone has a story, and it's important to listen to that. Um, we all have our own perspectives, and we all have our own ideas. But I think to just stop and just actually listen to someone and what they're saying and what their life has done, it's really really impacted me and I think just that by by doing that by stopping and listening because we don't realize that we are just trying to respond instead of actually listening that by sitting in the truck and windshield time has been so important not just shop time under horses it's just sitting in or having a beer and um, I think all farriers around the world we all are on the same page and we're all trying to get to the same goal we all want to connect in a certain way we all want the better the community, it's just finding the same ground that we can all work off of in a fair way because, again, we're all unique individuals and we have to respect each other and our own businesses and, and lives because when, when it comes down to it, farriers do, we're, we are just shoeing horses to make a living and we are just trying to spend time with our families or at home while we're still volunteering with our associations and trying to make everything better for everybody but also trying to kind of keep everybody happy in a sense so that we can all find the same ground. And hopefully with this international exchange, Vern and I are working very hard with the AFA and other associations to try to make a way and just basically baby steps start with communication and just keep it simple. So someone out there thinking about either the long course, the short course, getting involved or applying, maybe some hesitancy, um, could be how they prepare their business if they leave, or fortunately, maybe they're in a place where they haven't started. What advice do you have for just jumping into it and, and trying to be part of this? I would say reach out to people like myself or anybody else on the exchange. We have a huge list on the website who who has been involved. Um, do your research. Don't just show up, you know, unless you have networks and contacts. Um, you have to remember when you're going on these exchanges, you're living with people and their families. So you have to respect that. And it is an invitation only. One thing you can ask and, you know, inquire. But it is quite it is quite selective because it's a big trustworthy thing. So I think getting qualified, getting, getting into the competition, even if you're not competing, stay involved, go to clinics, get to know people, 
start your network base because if you're just some random person showing up, you're not as likely to maybe be perceived as well, even though it is quite an open community. Set yourself up for success. Um, go to a big competition, introduce yourself, get involved. People respect that, and no one really wants to turn anyone away. But if no one knows you, it's kind of hard to base anything off. And um, so, yeah, just do your research, get a hold of people, figure out what you want to get out of the trip because it's for you and no one else other than the people you're with that you can give back to. But at the end of the day, it is what you want to get out of it. So, yeah, reach out and plan and prepare and, you know, just just do it while you can because no one ever said that they wish they hadn't traveled, they wish they hadn't gotten on that plane. Most I wish I had a dollar every time someone told me they wish that they did what I'm doing at the moment. So just don't have any regrets and to each their own and everyone's trip is an individual thing. So make it your own and just go for it. Don't, don't wait. <laughs> you can learn more about the American Farriers Association exchange program at their website at AmericanFarriers.org. Farrier regulation is a polarizing topic within the industry. So efforts among farriers in the Canadian province of British Columbia made news by exploring self-regulation. They are also redefining qualifications of farriers through education in that province. I spoke with farrier and educator Jared Laverty on the latest updates of these efforts. Can you give us a little bit of information on what's going on and how it began? Well, in our part of the world, we've actually had three things going on, more or less at the same time. One has grown out of, of the other a bit, but the, the first thing was the this lobby group that is pushing for uh, self-regulation of all non-veterinary practice in, in British Columbia, and, and that's only in British Columbia, and, and that group is uh, made up of animal owners, not just horse owners, that uh, actively want to have veterinary legislation rewritten. And I think we've, we've talked about that in the past. And that's still ongoing. It's going to be, I think it's going to be a, a long-term project because uh, I think where they're at right now is the government really hasn't engaged too much. I think the government is taking a wait-and-see attitude because it'll, as with all governments, it'll come down to votes, whether the government can gain votes or lose votes by um, getting on board with this. And then the other part of it is how is it going to be financed? And the government has said that they will not contribute any money to it. So it it has to be self-financed and it's going to be self-regulated. The government is going to stand in the background and oversee it to make sure it's done properly. But I think it's it's going to take a while uh, for that to uh, come to fruition, if it does. But a spin-off from that has been the uh, the need for a more comprehensive education framework for farriers in Canada and certainly in BC if it become regulated. So because of, of that push to regulation has caused us to think long and hard about how we can improve the education of farriers. And it, it started in BC, but pretty quickly it's spread right across the country. And now we have a working group that... Uh, we have a conference call about once every two months over the, the winter that's been ongoing, discussing what an apprenticeship should look like, how long it should be, what what would be the requirements to successfully complete the apprenticeship, which then leads into um, who's going to train you to get to that, that level, should there be... Uh, Markers along the way, so at the, maybe at the end of the first year, the end of the second year, you know, it, um, should there be exams that you have to do? 
So we're, we're still in discussion on all of that, but I, I think we've more or less settled on a model similar to the British model, about three years, minimum of three years with a high exit exam as the standard. So probably most people are going to be more than three years unless they're really talented and really dedicated. And then at the other end, how would they get into the apprenticeship? And that's been an interesting discussion. So my thinking on it is I'd like to see people come into the apprenticeship with a skill set already in place instead of being completely fresh with no knowledge at all or no skills. So we're still discussing that, but more than likely it's going to be a choice of either self-preparation where you might have a local farrier help you prepare to meet those entrance requirements or you take a, a foundation course like most of the farrier programs are right now. Like our program is, is the new one's going to be 30 weeks and it's going to give you the base skills to go out and be someone's helper slash apprentice. So that would should uh, ideally prepare you to pass the entrance test to then get into the official apprenticeship program. And that time you would have spent in our course or in our program would be uh, uh, combined with the the rest of the time that you spent in the apprenticeship. So if you spent six or nine months with us, that would be included as part of your three years before you could do the exit exam. It's, it's kind of that's more or less my thinking on it. And we we haven't we haven't arrived at a consensus yet. One of the challenges, if the the goal is to make it a national program. But uh, trades training in Canada is a provincial responsibility. So each province has to have their own design. We have a national uh, um, standard for a lot of the trades called the Red Seal program. So in, in BC, a carpenter will finish his apprenticeship and do an exam. And he's accredited as a journey person carpenter in BC. But if he wanted to go and work in Ontario, he would have to be a red seal carpenter. So he has to take an additional exam to prove that he has the skills that he could go anywhere in the country and work. So it, it gives him portability or mobility. The, the challenge we have in Canada is um, not every province has a school. So we don't want to um, impede people that might not be able to travel to go to school to not be able to take the exam. So if say you live in um, Nova Scotia and there's no school in Nova Scotia, well, if you can find someone that'll help you prepare to do the exam, they should be allowed to do that. I think we'll probably end up with, the preference will be that you would go through a formal program, but if, if that's not possible and you want to uh, self-prepare or get someone local to help you prepare, that should, that should be a goal. How it's all gonna be financed is up in the air right now. Probably, we, we've talked about the idea of the, um, I think we've got four associations across the country, and hopefully they'll all get on board and put some seed money into it. But the, the idea is to keep this as uh, bureaucratically light as possible. More than likely, we'll create a, a governing body that'll be made up of representatives from all the associations, the four associations. And then from that, we will designate examiners, probably two or three in the east, two or three in the west. And then those examiners will be responsible for overseeing the exams. And in between the examiners and the, the governors, there would be a registrar, would be the person that would be the administrator. 
you know, and it's and more than likely to start with, that'll all be voluntary. To back you up, maybe what was going on provincially or nationally in Canada to, mm. to initiate this conversation? Well, the, the, the self-regulation thing got a lot of conversation going, and we've tried to be as open as possible about the discussions that are going on. And of course, not everyone within our farrier community in British Columbia or within our association, which covers Western Canada, is in favor of self-regulation. There's a fair constituency that they take the stance that we should not engage with this, we should pretend it's not happening and just keep our heads down and hopefully it'll all go away. And, you know, that might be the case, it might go away, but if it doesn't, then we're going to have somebody else tell us what we're going to do. And I don't want that to happen. I'd rather we develop the framework, and if, and if it does come to pass, then at least we are going to be masters of our own environment. So, so that's, that's kind of how it started. And we've, we've had um, two, maybe three public meetings, and it's been really encouraging how on a Saturday night in April, we've had 75 farriers drive hundreds of miles to sit in an hotel room for four or five hours and work through this problem. And it, uh, the first one, we uh, what we did was, I think we had about 75 or 80 farriers there, a big meeting room, and what we did was we broke, divided the group up into tables of 10 to 15 people and gave them a question. So if we have to do this, how long should an apprenticeship be? You've got 20 minutes to think about it, and then your speaker's going to come back and tell the whole room what you came up with. You know, it didn't mean that we developed the answers there, but it meant we were really focused in the space of, I think, three hours. We had way more information than if we just sat there and kicked it around in a circle all night. The second one, we had the representatives from the lobby group come and speak to the farriers, and that was more of a, a raucous meeting. It actually went off on a tangent where we, we got into a discussion about what is, what is it that a farrier does? And one of the, the sticking points is, do we diagnose? Well, you know, there was a big discussion about, no, we don't diagnose. Well, actually we do. You know, it's, we, that horse has got white line disease. That horse has got thrush. That's within our domain. But the way the veterinary legislation is written right now, that is not. We are not allowed to do that. You know, it's, if a bar shoe has to go on a horse's hoof, a vet has to supervise that. You know, that's not what's happening in practice. But if the veterinary college in BC decided to, they're the governing body, if they decided to impose the act, they could. And they could severely restrict our practice. You know, and, and that's a concern. Because, of course, the veterinary college is watching what's happening. And I'm sure there's, there's a group within uh, the veterinary um, practitioners that are thinking, you know, should we be more proactive and should we capture more of that before it's it's confirmed that we can't? Because I, I think the other possibilities are that the veterinary college, which is the governing body of all practicing vets in BC, they could decide, well, we'll regulate farriers because we're by far the biggest group of all non-veterinary practitioners. And if we're captured by the veterinary college, then the others are all so small that they're not viable. And if, if we were governed by the veterinary college, just like uh, veterinary assistants or technicians, then, you know, we're going to get di dictated to. You know, it's, uh, there's no way we're going to be on an even playing field, I feel. 
you know so but you know that that's pure speculation like this there hasn't been a conversation with the veterinary college about going down that path but i'd have to think that some people are probably thinking about that yeah and i think that's always the thing of if it is never going to be followed through why not strike that language yeah yeah so it's interesting times and it, i said there were three things so self-regulation is one and the spin-off from that has been the apprenticeship and the the uh so each association has a working group working on apprenticeship and then we have a national group that's that's a collection of individuals from each of those working groups that is getting together on the phone on a regular basis and and that the the apprenticeship probably in in western canada or in bc is probably going to be in place before the end of the year self-regulation that's a multi-year project if if ever but then the other thing of course is at the institution that i teach at the past year it was up in the air whether they were going to continue with farrier training it took until late september early october for me to effectively change that that stance of the institution they have completely reversed their decision the program that i teach is going to be shut down in three weeks but i've designed a new program that's going to open in october so uh, hopefully that will allow for a seamless transition for people that are interested in getting into the trade come in and uh, complete our 30-week program and then uh, take the entrance uh, test to get into the apprenticeship and for those that obviously have uh, the aptitude and determination to be farriers which will probably be uh, you know 30 to 50 percent of the class is what i'm expecting would then enter an apprenticeship and and off they'd go how, how quickly did those conversations start happening across all the provinces surprisingly quickly on the apprenticeship thing and it partly it um, I think maybe five years ago, I uh, thought I would start looking at developing apprenticeships for farriers. So one of the first things I did was I created a Facebook page. I think it was just called Canadian Farriers. The whole premise was, is there an interest and a desire to create apprenticeships for farriers in Canada? And uh, within a month, I had 1,800 likes. And then it just sat there. I was expecting I was going to get engagement from the people that are training the young farriers that are coming out today. And I didn't. And it took me a while to figure out why I wasn't. And I, I'm not sure about this, but I think part of the reason was is not all, but quite a few of the training farriers are quite comfortable with things the way they are because there's no oversight you know, so they can pick and choose. And if someone gets hurt or whatever, they can treat them how they like. They can pay them or not. You know, it's uh, there's no safety standards, nothing like that, which with an apprenticeship, there's going to be rights and responsibilities for both parties, both trainer and trainee. So everyone's going to have to step up to the plate that way, which has then led me to recognize that the AFA um uh, on the examining side, we need to step up to the plate with developing another uh, component of the examination process, which is safety. You know, so we're we're giving people credentials, saying that they're proficient as a farrier at a certain level, but there's no safety check, and it it hasn't been an issue yet. But at some point in the future, maybe someone might come along and go, "Wait a minute, you say he's a she's a journeyman, and you know they they did X, Y, or Z, and and it's caused a problem." So, 
So maybe in the immediate, what's to be expected on the self-regulation side, and then what are the coming milestones since this is a multi-year approach? Yeah, well, to be honest, I'm not too sure. I haven't been on the phone calls. Will Klinging is our contact person, and he's been doing an awesome job on that. But I, I think at this point, uh, my understanding is that we're waiting for direct engagement with the deputy minister, I think it is, to sit down and decide how we're going to go to the next step, which is, is it going to be one regulating body for all the, the practices that are non-veterinary, or is it going to be broken up into individual bodies? Like, will we have our own farrier regulating body or will be part of, of chiropractors and massage therapists? And then the other one is figuring out how it's going to be financed, because that, that really, I think, is going to be the pinch point for everyone. You know, it's no one wants to be paying additional fees for, you know, what are they going to get back? Nothing other than, you know, just oversight. So to be honest, hard to answer that question. The the, the only other um, thing that I think people are mindful of is the government we have in BC is a coalition government. I think that's the best way to describe it. So at any point that government might collapse, which means that this this whole idea might evaporate. It's hard to say. You know, there are so many different things swirling around in the world these days that this this could come to fruition, or it you know it might just die on the shelf. How how many uh, farriers enter the trade each year in BC, and how, how many farriers are currently practicing in the province? Nobody actually knows, and we have tried to find out. And it's very difficult <laughs> to find out. There's there's no single uh, way that we can. Probably income tax returns would probably be the, the best way. But even that, I don't think would give you a, a solid answer. Initially, whenever I was asked, I and I just pulled this number out of the air, I thought it might be as mem- many as 800. But now I'm inclined to think it might be somewhere between four to 600. But depends on how you qualify a farrier. Is it someone that works five days a week at it, or is it someone that earns the majority of their income but only works two days a week? You know, it's do you include trimmers? You know, it's I'd be inclined to include anyone that does any kind of hoof care. But how many people enter the trade? I don't even know the answer to that. Um, We train twelve people a year, but olds also, and the majority of them are from BC. But we do get. Uh, people from all across the country. Like it's, I've had several students from the prairies and from Ontario, from the, the uh, Maritimes, and occasionally from outside the country. But Alberta trains quite a few British Columbian residents and quite a few of them come back home. And then there's still a, at least an equal number that come down to the States and get trained and come back home. So probably three times the size of my class, but of my class, only 30% will continue on in the trade three years out, I would say. Yeah. So if, if we had 12 a year, I think that would, that would be a realistic number. Okay. And uh, just maybe for some context, I mean, BC is a fairly large province. Uh, what, yeah. What's our horse culture like? It, it's concentrated in a, in, a, in a few places. The south end of Vancouver Island is there's a, quite a concentrated population and Vancouver Island's not very big. So you drive an hour and a half and you go from 
the southern end of the horse population to more or less the northern end of it. Then the Fraser Valley is where the majority of the horses are, and that's kind of a pie-shaped valley that um, the western side of it has Vancouver, and then the pointy end of the pie shape is up into the interior where Bob Marshall lives. But that has a lot of horses. And then the uh, interior, mainly the Okanagan, but also up in the area that I used to live in, in central BC, which is Prince George, about the middle of the province. There's a lot of horses there too. And then up north on the other side of the Rockies, which is uh, close to the oil country. And there's a lot of horses there as well. So they're, they're concentrated in a few places. But there's, compared to some of the states, there's not that many horses, about 100 and I think it may be 150,000. Alberta, I think, has about three times as many horses as, as BC has. But we don't have a big population. We only have, I think, about four and a half million people in BC. And the majority of them live in the Vancouver area. Probably more than 50% live in the Fraser Valley. You know, so. so as you mentioned before, there's some people who aren't thrilled about the idea, farriers who aren't thrilled about the idea of self-regulation. Mm-hmm. What do you say to them? Um, well, I completely understand. You know, t- I've worked most of my career in North America where there's been no oversight. It's a free market. Do as you like. And, and that, that's, that's great. But there are benefits from regulation. First thing is, all through my career, we have uh, had a desire to be considered as professionals um, and be held you know, in a little higher esteem than we used to be. And I think that has improved tremendously, but this actually would be a step in the right direction in that way. Having the part of the self-regulation that I like the most is the idea of having a more comprehensive framework for education. Instead of the, the way it is right now, if you have the right connections or you have someone in your circle, most likely a family member, that helps you get the right start, you're probably going to be successful. But there's a huge amount of wastage of uh, human effort and and income to get to that level because it's all up to you. You know, if, if anything happens, you get hurt, you get sick, um, you know, it's uh, you have an economic event that just precludes you being able to access the resources that you need to, it kind of excludes you from the trade. We're in... In Britain and Ireland, there's a framework there, especially for the younger people that probably don't have the life skills yet to have the discipline to be able to get to where they need to. They, uh, it's a little easier. So, uh, and also to make sure that you're getting the training that you should be getting. Like you, you do see some people that they're really just helpers. You know, they, they might be called apprentices, but they're being kept to a low level. They're they're not gra- allowed to graduate through the the training that they should do, you know, and they're being used to pull shoes and clinch for way too long, you know. It's, uh, but there's no one to say you can't do that, you know. And it and our apprenticeship wouldn't stop that from still happening, but at least it would give people a choice. You know, you could enter this framework. There will be uh, responsibilities that you have to step up to, but you also will have rights. Right now, the trainee has no rights, which is a problem. You know, I see young people getting hurt and then, you know, they're just essentially pushed out of the truck. And, you know, so they're out of the business and they've got an injury that in some cases can be life altering. So in that respect, you know, it's uh, the trade has been good to me and uh, 
for anyone that that would consider being a training farrier, it's partly it's payback. You know, it's someone helped you get to where you are. You were lucky enough to to have those resources in place or come upon them and uh, just make it easier for the next generation coming up. Thank you to Jared, Kim, and Grant for joining me. In our next episode, we'll talk with California farrier and educator Bob Smith about his career and some of the business advice he has for defining your clients. Until then, thank you for listening.